Having a garage sale. It sure sounded like a good idea, didn't it? I mean, it's a way to simplify, tidy up, declutter your house, and make a little money along the side, and so, uh, or on the way. So, uh, so, so you, you gather all your stuff, you organize it, you clean it up, you thoughtfully price it, and when it's all said and done, you've made about $13.75, <laughs> equal to about $0.68 cents an hour, hours spent with a bunch of cheapskate people who can't appreciate the value of some really good stuff, right? Like, uh, like, for instance, maybe it's your college CD collection. We're talking a priceless collection of vintage grunge music from the 1990s. A CD collection that your wife has been trying to get rid of for months because you don't have a CD player anymore. But for all of you under 30, I'll give you a second to Google what a CD is. Um, just figure that out. And See, see, see it's, it's the problem of a garage sale. You have all of this stuff that's really, really valuable, and people just don't appreciate it, which is actually a bigger problem of living in a market economy or, or participating in a free market. You know, in a market economy, things, the value of things fluctuates over time based on a variety of factors, things like supply and demand and other things. So, uh, so that the house that you bought, that you poured all kinds of sweat equity into and you've improved it over the years, it may actually be worth, worth less when you sell it than when you bought it. Anyone heard that experience? Not a good experience, but it can happen. Or that car that you've lovingly taken care of and you vacuumed it every Saturday and waxed it by hands and you know, you've got all kinds of fond memories. You know, maybe the car you took your baby home from the hospital in or where you went on a date with the person who's now your spouse. I mean, none of that matters when you go to sell your car. Just whatever the value is according to the market. And so there is this, there is this tension that we live with all the time, whether it's at a garage sale or anything else, a tension between what the market says something is worth and what we feel it's worth. And those things don't always line up. I think even more personally, on a deeper level, some of us have been raised to believe that we are mama's little priceless treasure, right? And those of us who maybe have grown up in the church, maybe we've grown up hearing that we are the apple of God's eye. And that feels really good, and then you take that out into the world, and the world says, don't bring that up in here. (laughs) They're not buying it, are they? See, as we live life in the rest of the world, we realize that We've got to prove ourselves. No one's going to give us anything. No one's going to recognize our value. We, we have to demonstrate our value, demonstrate that we've got something to offer, demonstrate that we're worth something. We've got to hustle for it. And I think we just kind of take for granted that this is the way things have to be. This is just the way it is. And to a degree, maybe that's right. But today, um, I, I want to challenge this, and, and I want to suggest that this way of life where we have to hustle for our worth, we have to prove our value, where our value is relative and it's always shifting and every day we've got to get up and start all over again proving that we're worthy. I want to prove that it's straight from hell. Today we're going to look at a church, another church, um, who were the original audience of this book, Revelation. Um, Jesus gave a revelation, a, a vision to a man named John. John wrote it down. He sent it to these seven churches in Asia Minor, it was called, or it's modern-day Turkey. Uh, we're going to look at this church today right here, Pergamum. 
Uh, it's one of these proud Asian cities. Pergamum was a, testimon- a testimony or testament to really wise urban planning in the ancient world. It, it, was, it was a beautifully laid out city. It made sense. It had a library that was second only to the great library down in Alexandria, Egypt. So um, it, was, it was a great, well-known city. But as Jesus looks at Pergamum, he sees some other things and he says some other things. Let's look at what he says. Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. He says this, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write... These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, this is a reference back to how Jesus revealed himself in Revelation 1. Um, Jesus showed himself to be not like the Jesus we normally think of, but instead a Jesus with hair as white as wool, eyes burning like fire, feet uh, like burnished bronze, um, holding stars in his hands, his voice sounding like rushing waters, and out of his mouth coming a sharp, double-edged sword, otherwise known as Scary Jesus. This is not the Jesus you want to like put in front of your kids before they go to bed at prayer time, right? And I think for a lot of us, we're like, wait a minute, if this is what Jesus really looks like, I don't want to go where he is. But remember why Jesus appears this way. These words are written to people who are living under intense persecution. And they need to be reminded that their God is a powerful, powerful God. And so that's how Jesus introduces himself again here. And he says to them, I know where you live. Like, like I understand the circumstances that you're living under, that place where Satan has his throne. Some people think that that might be a reference to the altar of Zeus that was in Pergamum. Uh, it's now housed in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. Um, but, but maybe it's that or maybe it's something else. There's something else here, I think. He says, yet, in spite of the fact that this is where Satan has his throne, whatever that means, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, the the city where Satan lives. So uh, Jesus brings up this name Antipas. Now Antipas, we know from church history, was the leader of the church in Pergamum, kind of like the the head of all of the church in Pergamum. And we know from church history that he was put to death for his faith. Because he was teaching Jesus as Lord, and because he refused to teach that Caesar was Lord, or to bow to the Roman emperor, he was put to death. But he was put to death in an especially gruesome way. This uh, this kind of icon uh, represents what happened to him. They put him in a bronze kettle that resembled a bull, resembled an idol, and they slow-roasted him alive in front of everybody. And so I kind of wonder when Jesus says that city where Satan has his throne, he's, he's recalling that Pergamum was the place where this persecution that's now going through all seven of these churches first started. Uh, Antipas, he was the first martyr in the region. And so maybe this is just an acknowledgement that this is the place where this horrible evil that has broken out all over the empire began. And yet Jesus says to these people, he says, you know what? Even when that happened, even when you saw that happen to your leader, you remained faithful to me, which is no small thing. I I think if they roasted me out front in a bronze kettle tomorrow morning, I wonder how many of you would be back here next week, right? No offense, but you'd you'd think about it, wouldn't you? And yet these people didn't think about it. they're, They're faithful to Jesus, but that's not the whole story. He says, nevertheless, even though that's all true, I do have a few things against you. 
says, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. We'll come back to this in a second. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, from those teachings. Otherwise, I will soon come and I will fight against those, those false teachers with the sword of my mouth, with, not with weapons of this world, but with the sword of my mouth, my word is the only weapon that I need. One thing uh, that I think we're all learning about Revelation is that it will wear you out with some obscure references to other things in history and in the Bible. True, right? Um, I want to go back to one of them, these two guys who are named Balak and Balaam that were just mentioned. Jesus says that you've, you've been kind of enticed by their teaching. Uh, those men are, also, are um, actually men who lived way, way back a long time ago. You have to go to Numbers 22, way back in the Old Testament, to read about them. Balak was a pagan king, and he wanted to destroy the Israelites. He saw them as a threat. And so uh, to destroy the Israelites, what he did is he hired this prophet named Balaam, and he hired Balaam to come and to speak curses over the Israelites so they'd be destroyed. Now, uh, God intervened, though, so Balaam was all on board, and, he, and every time he opens his mouth to try to curse the Israelites, God causes blessing to fall out of his mouth instead. And it's kind of this comical thing. He opens his mouth, he's ready to curse them, and he speaks these amazing blessings over the people, which is not what Balaam wanted, not what Balak wanted. So they go back to the drawing board, and Balaam advises Balak on another path. If, if they can't do this in a head-on way... Here's what Balaam tells Balak to do. We read about it in Numbers 25. It says, Then the Israelite men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, with foreign women, pagan women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. And the people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, to this, this idol, this false god, and the Lord's anger burned against them. See, we, we, we begin to understand why Jesus brings up this really old, obscure reference to Israel's history as he's talking to these uh, Christians in Pergamum. And, and I think it's an important warning for us sitting here today. He's reminding us that if the enemy cannot scare us away or intimidate us through a head-on attack, right? If we can't be destroyed through, through a head-on attack, like speaking curses over the people or, or going to war or roasting uh, faithful people in a bronze kettle, slow roasting them in, in a, just a horrific, gruesome way. If the evil, evil one can't win in those head-on tactics, then, then he'll shift his tactic to a more subtle but effective approach. He will entice us. Now, when we hear the words entice... Uh, probably thanks to our Puritan ancestors, we may immediately assume that this is going to be about pleasure, that we'll be enticed with pleasure, and that pleasure is evil. And we see even mention here of food sacrifice to idols, and we see sexual immorality, and we say, yep, that's right. Good food and sex or physical pleasure, those things are bad, they're evil, they'll, they'll cause you to go astray every time. But we need to be clear about something here. Both back in the days of Balaam and Balak in that ancient history and what's happening here in Pergamum is something a little more subtle. See, food sacrificed to idols, that's not just about eating good-tasting food. It's actually referring to the fact that, that people were taking communion from the altar of foreign gods, pagan gods. 
It wasn't just eating good food. It was food that was offered to gods in worship. People were having communion with those gods. Sexual immorality wasn't just a a reference to run-of-the-mill sexual immorality like adultery or pornography or that kind of stuff. But this is describing how pagan people would often worship. We saw back in Numbers 25 in that small section I read that the way pagans would worship their gods is there were these temple prostitutes and as part of your act of worship, you would go and you would engage in acts with the temple prostitute and it was believed that by these acts presented to the gods, then maybe the gods would send rain or they would cause your crops to grow or your flocks to multiply. See, see, pleasure is the bait. The real enticement, the real dangerous thing here is the sin of idolatry. It is, it is worshiping another god, these acts of worship directed to another god. Now, I think for us here today, this just kind of sounds crazy and unthinkable, Right? We may go through seasons in our faith life that are hot and cold, or we may have doubt or questions, but few of us, when we're having those questions, think, you know, I'm, I'm going to go worship another God. I'm going to bow down or pray to another God. That's, that's kind of not the battle that we face, but we are certainly not above being enticed into something that's false. See, I think one of the key ways that we find ourselves being enticed is, is when the evil one, he entices us through something that we're already so quick to believe that it's ultimately on us to make ourselves valuable, lovable, or worthy. Not just in the eyes of people in, in a market economy where we have to prove our worth, but even before God. I think so many of us are way too quick to believe that, that we've got to hustle for God's affection, that that we've got to work for a sense of value. If we want God to favor us, there's something that we have to do through our actions, through our works. And it's not as crass maybe for us as the stuff we see in Numbers 25 or even what's going on in Pergamum. It's, It's not, you know, dining at the altar of a false god or it's not temple prostitution. For us, it's much more subtle, it's much more refined, but I think it's also dangerous for us us, it may be serving the poor, or it may be memorizing certain prayers that we pray over and over and over again, or doing daily devotions, spending time with, with God every day, or, you know, in a devotional booklet, or even coming to church, or giving tithes and offerings. Those are all good things, by the way, unless we think that somehow by those things, we are endearing ourselves to God. If if we think that somehow by those things we're earning God's love or favor or approval, we're making ourselves more lovable. If we believe that by those things, our obedience or our piety, our sacrifice, not just through pleasure, but any of those things that we are then presenting ourselves in a way that God will have to value us because we've shown that we're people of value, then just like the people back in Balaam and Balak's day, just like the people in Pergamum, we are being enticed away from the faithful worship of Jesus, which looks different. Jesus describes what it looks like in the rest of uh, Revelation 2. He says, whoever has ears to ears, like ears to uh, to hear, if you're going to listen, if you're open to this, hear this, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, to the one who is, you know, faithful, who comes through all of the crazy stuff going on, he says, here's the key, I will give some of the hidden manna 
I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Again, some obscure references here, but I think both of those references, Jesus is describing himself. He's saying, you want to know what faithfulness looks like? You want to know how to get through this victoriously? I will give you hidden manna. Jesus is the bread of life, the scriptures say. Jesus says, this white stone, this foundation stone, it's the stone the builders have rejected, the one that has become the cornerstone. I will give you a bedrock for your identity, a new name, my name, that you can build your life upon. See, whenever we think it's on us to present ourselves to God in a worthy way, we are being enticed away from what it's really, really about. See, faithfulness before God um, it, it, is, it is not a function of what we do, and, and I hope you know this. Instead, it's, it's a function of what Jesus wants to do, what he has done for us and in us. And whenever we get this wrong, whenever we think it's on us, and so we wake up in the morning and we set out to try to prove ourselves worthy to God or to other people and, and we get through the day and we evaluate ourselves and we look at our scorecard and we go to bed and we wake up and we start it all over again. That is not only a hellish way to live life, but that is a way of life that leads to a hellish eternity. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, I want to go to Revelation 20 now and I would love for you to open your Bibles, page 1251, because this is, this is thick. And uh, you might want to bounce around to just to be able to follow this. Um, so 1251, if you're here in the room or wherever you are, I encourage you to open up a Bible or a Bible app or something to Revelation chapter 20. These are scenes of the here and now and of what is to come. We get pictures of things like judgment day in heaven, in hell. And I want you to see through all of that what the underlying dynamic is that makes a difference in people's eternity. So Revelation chapter 20, uh, here we go. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon, we've heard about the dragon, that ancient serpent, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and he locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So, so we're beginning to get this picture that, that even though we're experiencing hardship in the here and now, even though life is hard and evil is reigning, and that's especially true for the people living back who are a part of this original audience, Right? They're, they're watching their leaders be roasted in a, in a kettle alive. I mean, this is, this is ugly. Evil is afoot, and, and we see it in our world today, right? This, first and foremost, is a reminder that it's not going to go on forever. A time is coming when evil will be overthrown, where evil will be defeated. It's giving us hope so that we don't um, become overwhelmed. Um, but that's not all. It goes on, and it says, And I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. So John's having this vision of, of what's, what's to happen, and, and he sees these people who have died for their faith or died out of faithfulness to God. It goes on. And it says, They had not worshipped the beast, 
right? They had not bowed down to another god. They had not bowed down to the emperor in particular or his image or had not received the mark, uh, his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life, even though they were dead, they came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, those aren't all the dead because it says the rest of the dead at this time did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection because the reason they're blessed and holy is because the second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So so the first thing we see is that there is this group of people who are dead, who did not receive the mark of the beast, who remained faithful, who did not bow to a, a false god, who were not enticed away or did not deny Jesus. And although they're dead, we see them alive. And they're reigning with Christ. But we also see that there's this other group of people who are also dead and at this point, they're still dead. They, they stay dead. And, and we're going we're gonna to examine it a little bit further in a, sec, in a minute. And we're going to see what's up with, with that second group. But now I have to tackle the thousand years. Because <laughs> uh, it's come up like five times and I tried to ignore it. But it just kept coming up. Uh, you see, this, this reference to a thousand years, um, it's something that Christians just debate. And there's a lot of really smart people who believe different things about it. Um, it's called the millennium, and there's even a theology of, you know, are you post-millennial or amillennial or pre-millennial, and, and there's movies made about this thousand years, this millennium, and what it's all about. Our theological tradition says that this uh, thousand years is actually figurative, that it's referencing the time that we're even in now, where Jesus is reigning, evil is still active, it's not been defeated yet, but evil is under restraint, it can't fully have its way because it's already judged, it's already been been defeated. Uh, As I read this week, though, um, there was something as I was reading, and and take this lightly, because this is about, you know, a five-day working theory, okay? Um, But as I read this, I I began to wonder, you know, maybe the reason that this millennium thing, this thousand years thing is, is so divisive and confusing for us is because we keep trying to apply it to us here on earth. What does this mean for us? What does this thousand years look like for us? And as I read Revelation 20, I I don't see it being applied to us. See, it's not talking about what it means for us here. It's talking about those who have already died faithfully, who have not bowed a knee to any other God, who have suffered for their faith, who are now alive with Christ reigning. See, I I think the thousand years is something that that applies to them. It's, it's describing the era that they're now living in where evil is now out of reach. E- evil can't reach them anymore. They're protected. Now, now think about this for a second. If your pastor or your loved one, your spouse, your child was, was killed brutally for their faith for no other reason than the fact that they profess Jesus, that is an evil that I, I think would haunt you the rest of your life. How can, how can this be? And what a comfort to those people, and this is the people of Revelation, what a comfort to those people to know that even though evil is still at work in the world and and down here we're still living through some persecution and some hardship, what a comfort to know that those who have died in faith, that they are out of the reach of evil. That for them, the dragon has been locked into an abyss, he is chained, he cannot reach them anymore, and they now get to reign. I mean, for those of us even today who have lost loved ones, you know, just in the last service, I, I prayed with a couple who 
um, just lost their 38-year-old niece, mother of three, to breast cancer. But she was a woman of faith. And as, as much as that family is grieving, uh, what a comfort to know that for those of us who die with the name of Jesus on our lips, that even while we go on here in grief and suffering and have to deal with evil and hardship, what a comfort to know that for those who, who have had to experience the worst of evil, that they're now out of evil's reach, alive and well with Jesus. See, I, I kind of think, again, it's a five-day theory that whenever we apply this thousand years to us here on earth, we're missing the point. It's not meant for us. It's describing what those who die faithfully are experiencing. But, but a day is coming, Revelation says next, and we're going to skip over a few verses here just for the sake of time. A day is coming when what they're experiencing will become our reality too because then it says the dragon will be released. There's going to be this epic battle between heaven and earth and then the dragon, the evil one, and all of his minions will be thrown into the lake of fire destroyed forever. And evil will, will be done away with and we will all applaud because we will see that truly Jesus is victorious. But even then, that's not the end of the story. I want to go to uh, Revelation 20, verse 11 now. It says, then after this, after he's been defeated and um, thrown into the lake of fire, the dragon, it says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. I love this word, the wording here. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened you can see it up here. Books were opened. Another book was opened on the other side, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books over there. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And basically wherever there is dead, they gave up their dead and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades themselves were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, so death itself is done away with. And it says, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. See, it's describing this thing that I think probably most of us have heard about. It's judgment day. And we're getting this picture of, of the dead being raised and, and there are all of these books and, and, and these books record everything that we've ever done, good or bad. And we have to stand and give account for everything that's been recorded, all of the dirt that God has on us. We have to stand and give account for what we have done. Is that terrifying to anyone else? And in fact, it sounds a lot like what I said God is not about earlier. It sounds a lot about like this, this existence we live where we have to prove ourselves worthy and defend ourselves and, and compare ourselves to, other in order to others to find a sense of value. It, it sounds like we've got to now make a case before God and convince him that somehow we're worthy of being welcomed into eternity in his presence. But what we need to understand here is who the dead are here. Because remember, the dead that are being described here are not all who have died. 
We've already seen another group of the dead, those who didn't bow to another god, those who did not receive the mark of the beast or or worship some other god, those who remained faithful to Jesus. And although they were dead, they were already made alive, a part of the first resurrection, never to taste death again. This is that other group, the, the dead who stayed dead for a little while. And now notice that these people are the ones who are being raised up. And they're the ones who have to stand and give account. And they have to hear the record of their lives. And, and they have to stand before judgment. They'll be judged by what they've done. And the reason why is because that's how they've lived. Again, go back to that dangerous enticement I talked about earlier, what I've called a hellish existence. When we live life thinking that it's on us to prove that we're lovable or worthy worthy of love or belonging, hustling for your worth, standing on your own merits or accomplishments. It is a hellish existence in the here and now. But if you make a a life of doing that, of being defined by what you do, it's the key to a hellish eternity. But understand something, there's another way, right? There's the books on the one side that have everything that we've done, and standing in opposition is this other book, the book of life. And if your name is in that book, it's a different story for you. You you don't have to give account for what you've done. Why? Because you got out of that game a long time ago when you trusted in the name of Jesus. See, when you trust in the name of Jesus, when you bow to Jesus, you're essentially saying, I don't want to stand on my own anymore. I'm not able to do that, and I would rather have someone stand in my place. When you stand in the name of Jesus, when you bow to Jesus, you're receiving that hidden man it talked about in Revelation 2. You're saying, Jesus, I need you to be my cornerstone, the one on whom I can build my life and my identity. I don't want to do this on my own. I I don't want my value to come from me and the things that I do. I'd rather have my value come from you and who you say I am and what you can do for me. See, that makes all of the difference between those who experience the the first resurrection and those who don't and, and those who have to stand and give account and those who don't. Look at how Jesus puts this in John. This is what he says is required for us. Not that we stand on our own, but he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. And just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread, the manna that came down from heaven, that hidden manna Revelation talks about, the the manna we read about in Exodus that fed the Israelites. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and they died, but whoever feeds on this manna, this bread on on me, they'll live forever. Jesus says, "That's, that's all you need. Feast on me, receive me, and I will nourish you with the kind of food that will enable you to live forever. He goes on and he says... I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me, I love this line, lives by believing in me, lives not by standing on your own merits, not by proving yourself worthy, not by good, faithful, pious, religious actions and thinking that somehow endears you to God. But if you live by believing in Jesus, he says, if that's true of you, you will never die. See, living this 
in this world where we constantly have to prove ourselves worthy, it's so easy to start to project that onto God himself and to imagine that God is demanding what everyone else is demanding. That we prove ourselves valuable and worthy and lovable. But whenever we do that, whenever we believe that, we have been enticed away from the faithful worship of Jesus. That's not who Jesus is. You just saw who Jesus is and what he requires. In fact, anytime we believe that other thing that it's on us, I think that's the beast of the earth that Pastor Doug Moss talked about last week, that, that, that dragon that's clothed like a lamb. See, that, that is not truly Jesus. See, faithfulness to Jesus, it is no small thing, but it's not what we make it. It's not about living worthily. Instead, faithfulness to Jesus is to live our lives bowing before the one who can make us worthy. And yes, it requires all-out loyalty. It requires faithful worship. It requires not bowing to anything else. And the reason Jesus demands that is because no one else, nothing else can give to you what you long for. Starting in the here and now, I'm talking about a sense of value where you don't have to hustle for your worth. A sense of belonging, a sense of forgiveness and grace that, that leads you through all the ups and downs of life. But, but only Jesus can give you more than that. He can give you something to stand on at the end of time because you don't want to be found standing on what's written about you in your books. Jesus says, bow to me and I will give you something that will enable you to stand, to live worthily forever. And it has nothing to do with anything that comes from inside of you and it has everything to do with what I can give to you. See, today, Jesus is here. And the same invitation that he extended to the people at Pergamum, he extends to you. He's inviting you to another way of living now and forever. And so I want to invite you to stand right now. And I invite you just to hold out your hands and close your eyes and, and just bow your head before Jesus, chin to chest, bow your head in humility and pray with me. Lord Jesus, We come before you empty-handed, knowing that if we are to be weighed by what's written about us in, in the, the volumes that you have on all of us, if, if the record of our life is to be exposed, there is going to be a lot of shameful things, selfish things, hateful things. that if it's on us to try to present ourselves as valuable or worthy or to sell ourselves or to convince you of our worth or to compare ourselves to others, the reality is we're lost. There's just not enough. And there's too much bad. 
even when we're trying our best. And so Jesus, we bow before you today. And we acknowledge you as the only true God, the one who came to give your life to save us. We acknowledge you as the bedrock of who we are and and we ask that you would make yourself our cornerstone, our foundation for life, that our identity would be found in nothing else other than you, Jesus. We bow before you, we bow our hearts before you and we declare our loyalty to you because we know no one else can satisfy, no one else can sustain us, no one loves us the way that you do and no one can give us life forever like you can. Jesus bow before you and we acknowledge that there's no other way to be made truly worthy to find value except by your decree, your your proclamation that we are loved and valuable. So Jesus, Our heart speaks your name today. So grateful for all that you've done. So grateful for your love. So grateful that you've made a way that that we don't have to stand on our own. But did you stand with us through this life, through the ups and downs, through the trials? You defend and protect us. And you stand for us on that last day. You speak our name to your Father And because of that, because we belong to you, we get to experience life, Jesus, for those reasons and so much more. We bow our hearts to you. We declare your name as the only name. And we say we love you. And all who agreed, all who made that their prayer, say with me, amen. 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 Jesus comes to us now and and gives us that hidden manna, that sustenance that comes from his very sacrifice, his very self, that enables us to live together, uh, live forever, the, the bread of life. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood and it's shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Now do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I invite you to be seated. In a moment, the ushers, the volunteers will direct you forward to, uh, to receive Jesus, the bread of life, to receive his grace and forgiveness poured out for you, to receive a worthiness and a value that you cannot find anywhere else. So welcome to the Lord's table.